and the temperatures dropped. I think uh, day seven, you know, the second half was a cold snap, but day seven was the coldest and it got to about 20 below ambient temperature. It was pretty still, but any breeze then was just, you know, cuts you that much more. Hey folks, I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Today we're talking to a veteran of the podcast, and that is Brandon Joy. He was on the show back in, what was it, episode 687. He was climbing the highest peaks in Montana, the 50 highest peaks, all in one trip, which was wild. Literally piecing together 50 different mountains all on foot, all in one big effort. It was it was wild. Go back and listen to that episode to get a uh, to get another sense of how how crazy Brandon's trips are. But this most recent one is wild. It was over the winter. It was it was it was, it was a handful of months ago, uh, right at the peak of winter. And it, it, if you know anything about Yellowstone and Grand Teton, uh, where this trip took place, oh my gosh, it can get so cold there in the winter. It is brutal. It it, it is winter there well after it should be winter, if you know what I mean. Like it is just freezing there so much of the time. And so when Brandon, when I heard Brandon crossed it on foot solo in the middle of winter, I was absolutely mind blown. The most miraculous thing is he didn't die because that would have been the first thing that happened to me. I would have just shriveled and withered away and and frozen to death because I don't handle the cold well. So Something that Brandon actually talks a lot about in this episode is just what gear he brought on this trip. You know, gear is what makes trips possible. You can't just cross Yellowstone on foot without anything. You need specialized gear. You need the right equipment. But that doesn't mean that gear has to be brand new out of the box and the the price of a home to actually get. I'm a huge fan of used gear. Buying and selling used gear is one of the greatest ways to make your adventure more possible. How many of us are letting gear or letting the lack of it keep us from doing our adventures because it's so expensive or maybe you're looking for this one thing? Well, I would really encourage you to check out rerouted.co. They have so many things, a huge selection of all sorts of -of one-of-a-kind items as well as very specialty items, uh, things for more general use like just camping in general. Um, You know, it's a great way. Way to start and try something out and rerouted is a great way to get some of that gear to try some of those new sports to see if you really like them before you start investing more into them a lot of positives to buying and selling used gear one keep stuff out of landfills two saves you a lot of money three it's one of a kind and four it just makes adventure more possible because you're not blowing all your money on gear so if you're on the lookout for something that you need for your next adventure please check out rerouted.co. All right, let's get into the episode. All right, folks, welcome to the podcast. Uh, you, you see by the title, we've got we've got a uh, an alumni of ASP coming back, Brandon Joy, here to tell us about his most recent adventure. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mason. It's yeah. good to be back. But man, how, how are you feeling? And also, I always ask this first, where are you coming from? So I'm in the Sun Valley area for a few days. Uh, kind of came here after the trip, and I've just been relaxing, 
you know, again, taking a little bit of time off work and, you know, just trying to, my main focus after these trips is, you know, it sounds maybe pretty basic or obvious, but to just really focus on hydration, eating as much as I can possibly eat and sleep. Cause those are really the things that are going to help me bounce back faster. Man, that sounds also, like the life right there. Yeah. Drink, eat, I, and sleep, it, man. Just what a, that's, that's what my dog, my dog's been doing that for, for 10 years. So I don't know what he's trained for, but he's doing a great job. Yeah. And it's, it's, to be honest, it's surprisingly difficult for me. Cause like after these trips, it's a hard effort. It's strenuous, like physically and mentally. And I just kind of want to let loose and just relax and like, just do whatever, stay up late or, you know, have a few beers, but ultimately, you know, I still need to just keep in the back of my mind to just, well, you know, keep the, keep the Nalgene filled with water, you know, just not setting an alarm, just sleeping in and, and being cognizant of how I'm doing and also taking time, appropriate time to reflect on what just happened. Cause it, I mean, as you know, with these, with longer trips or, you know, intense trips, you're out there and it can sometimes feel like it's dragging, but then it's like you snap your fingers or you blink your eyes. And then all of a sudden you're back in civilization and, and there's cars swarming around you and you're like, Whoa, we're, you know, it just goes by so fast. It really does, man. And, and especially for a trip like this, that's so isolating. And I'm sure you know, this is something that at least I notice when I'm out in like snow covered areas, it's so quiet all the time. You know what I mean? It's that muffled, everything's muffled from the snow. And so you had this incredibly isolated experience and probably incredibly quiet experience. Um, and now you're back in normal life. Tell us about what you did. Like, what did you do? How would you summarize it to someone that you just met? So, I essentially wanted to go on a long distance ski tour that was remote and I would get to see places and experience things that you know I couldn't necessarily do otherwise with just a weekend trip. So I created a route which is funny I this this idea came to fruition right before I went out on my Beartooth trip to do the Montana top 50, like the end of July, I was routing this. And I remember thinking, cause I was in Gaia m- mapping my Beartooth route. And I was thinking, Oh man, I, I should really focus on the Beartooth route and not get distracted about some other trips going on when I'm leaving for the Beartooth in a week. But it was, and so it wasn't something I knew I was going to do, but it was something that was interesting was the idea of just kind of crossing Yellowstone national park. And the idea developed some more and because of mostly because of snow conditions in the northern end of the park, it's a lot drier. So I would have had to fight some, you know, bare ground and, and that kind of thing. So I, instead I started at the base of the Grand Teton and Grand Teton National Park. I traversed north across the park and then into Yellowstone and essentially ended in West Yellowstone. So the route ended up being roughly 110 miles and took nine days, which I did solo. And I'll say I went in with the intention of doing it unsupported, you know, no, no caches. I, I built a small sled 
with you know kind of a, a basic toboggan that you can buy from you know ace hardware rei for 40 bucks and then put a couple half inch pvc poles and carabiners and just was able to attach that to the hip belt of my backpack and just drag it along behind me oh my gosh man this is i mean i'm looking at the map of it you literally it's like you know not necessarily along the road but you went through some of the most iconic places in yellowstone and in the tetons starting at the base of the teton crossing Mm -hmm. crossing yellowstone lake crossing jackson lake first then yellowstone lake which i assume because they were frozen and you're carrying all your stuff. You didn't resupply at all through your entire traverse of Grand Teton and Yellowstone. That's correct. And I'll, I'll make a uh, slight correction. So the map that, uh, that you are looking at is my, was my intended route before I started. When I was actually out there, I, once, essentially, once I crossed into Yellowstone, I was already far behind schedule. And so I had to reroute you know, the last six days of the trip were impromptu kind of decide as you go on a day by day basis where to go. The late travel, I thought would, you know, because you're thinking that's flat and it's probably wind, wind scoured. You might get some crust skiing. Um, the lakes, I ended up crossing six lakes uh, in total and they ended up, a couple of them were actually pretty pretty good for travel. And then a couple of them ended up being incredibly arduous. One of them was right off the bat was Jackson Lake. And, you know, it's only about 10 miles long and it took me roughly two days to cross. I mean, it was, it was really challenging for a couple of reasons. And I talked to a park ranger, a couple of park rangers before I left. And one of them has done a lot of ski touring in the park he's worked in the park for 20 years super knowledgeable and he warned me of the lake slush that can sort of slow travel down and it's a i don't know if to call it a phenomenon but it's just a, it, it occurs when you get snow loading and it the lakes are all completely frozen you get snow loading on top and then i was actually uh geeking out on this a little bit the other day, uh, Newton's third law, every force has an equal and opposite reaction. So when the, when the frozen lens on top of the lake, it has a weight distribution, it pushes down and actually forces on mostly on the peripherals of the lake. It forces the, the ice down and then water from fresh water comes up and then we'll say it kind of floods the lake. And so when I was crossing Jackson Lake, there were, there were portions of time where there was a foot of snow on top, which I was completely sinking down in because it was fresh. And then there was a foot of slush underneath. I mean, pure slush. And so, you know, I'll circle back a little bit. The trip ended up being, I wanted to do this in like the dead of winter and experience the kind of the fierce cold or climate that might come of it. The more logical thing to do would be wait till late spring, say in about a month or so, end of March, when the snow is more consolidated, they haven't been getting big 
snowstorms, snow accumulations, and then you do you stay on the surface a lot more and you can make ground a lot easier. What ended up happening is the whole Jackson area and you know Grand Teton National Park area had in the top five snowiest snowiest Februarys on record, which means that the two weeks prior to me starting, it got tons of snow. And then in the first 72 hours, there were like two 24 hour storms that each yielded about a foot of snow. So it was just coming down. And then that Jackson Lake, you know, I was crossing day two and three since it had gotten roughly two feet of snow. That's a ton of snow loading. And then there was a ton of water on the lake itself. Then as I moved into the park, this, you know, and then I got more snow as I moved into the park. And then the second half of the trip, there was a cold snap. So if it had warmed up, it, you know, and the sun was out, it would have given the snow a chance to consolidate some. But instead, I just got all of the snow and then it just didn't really budge. So I had to just trudge through all that fresh snow and then what had accumulated sort of in the first half of February through the trip as well. And I had uh, back, I had a, an Alpine touring setup, which is also not the most ideal setup for this trip. So, you know, just looks like a standard pair of Alpine skis that you'd see someone ski in boots that you'd see someone in a resort ski with. And I ski at a resort with the same setup, but my heels can detach and you know, so then you're just locked in at your toe and you can hike around similar concept to snowshoes. And then I have skins, which are one side is sticky that goes on the bottom of your ski. And then the other side that faces the snow is sort of has the same concept. I think of like a seal skin where if you pet it one way, it's soft. And then if you pet it, you know, if you run your hand the other direction, uh, it's, it's, all the hair stands up and it's more abrasive. So that allows you to have traction in the snow. But when those skins get wet or you have temperatures that are above freezing, you get the water molecules, liquid that get into the skins and then you get uh, snow glop. So you actually, as you're walking around, you're, you're getting these giant, I mean, the entire base of your ski not only do you have your boots on your feet and your skis and the skins, but then you're also have like, you know, one, two, three, four inches of this constantly adjusting snow load that's just stuck to your skins. And you can, you know, take your skis off and scrape it off, but because of the conditions and you still have the, some fluid water on in the skins as soon as you start going again, you have snow glop immediately. So I was really struggling with that on Grand on uh, Jackson Lake, and uh, and I was also each step because of the fresh snow, it was light. I was in my ski boot with my skis on, like every step almost. I was, we'll say, post holing, and the snow was coming up to the top of my ski boot. And this is this is right at the beginning. What were you thinking at that point in the trip about the way you had planned or the way you were 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 going to go? I mean, was it starting to get questionable even that early on? I mean, yes. You know, I 
I had planned essentially after I thought it would take two days to traverse Grand Teton National Park. And I think it ended up taking about three and a half. And so I think it was after the second day into the third day, you know, I was my I was planning to do roughly, say, 13 miles a day and days two and three. I think I averaged seven miles a day, which ended up also being my hardest days. I mean, these were long you know, averaging less than a mile per hour, really slow days. And at that point, I knew that I I had to change my route because if Jackson Lake's only 10 miles long and it and it put me through the ringer, Yellowstone Lake is 20 miles long and it's way more exposed. It's it's a lot wider. I mean, in portions, it's as wide as Jackson Lake is long. And that route also ended up, you know, if I would have gone to Yellowstone Lake, would have also had a lot more elevation gain. Another thing I found out is that in, especially in the deep powder, any, any type of elevation gain, my, my sled at the start weighed about 60 pounds and half of that was food and any type of elevation gain was just, it was just so difficult. And so I just knew that I had to kind of cut the route short and I still wanted to make the most of it. So I, I just kind of cut out Yellowstone Lake and, and rerouted accordingly. There's very few roads out there. There's really just a couple. Did you see anybody or were you pretty isolated most of the time? It's yeah, it's, it's actually, so Yellowstone national park is basically closed. Like they don't plow any of the roads in the winter. They don't even try, but the main, the main highways that go through Yellowstone they groom. And so they have a groomer that comes by like once a day. And I think most of the roads and there are a lot of people that go in and they do snowmobile tours. So from the South entrance or from West Yellowstone, they'll snowmobile in, or there's also snow coaches. So they have these, I mean, they look like a standard bus, small, but not, not even bus, like minivan almost, but they put these giant wheels and tires on so they have this mass and i mean they're they look like tanks and they just drive on the road no problem but they they since they groom the roads every day it ended up being a lot faster travel and i knew before i started the trip i didn't know what the snow conditions were going to be like you know i can hear that yeah there's been a ton of snow but in february but there wasn't a lot of snow before that and so I just, I didn't really have a good perception of what the level of effort was to post hole around, drag the sled in deep snow. And so <clears throat> I knew that the roads were a good fallback, I guess is what I'm saying. And I ended up taking the roads for, I think, roughly a third of the duration. And that was almost entirely in Yellowstone Park. And so people would go by there, you know, big groups in the morning and then later in the afternoon as people just go into Old Faithful. There's a couple pull offs along the way where there's some cool water features or waterfalls or good views that they would pull off at and they would keep keep on rolling. So I ended up seeing a lot of people, but I was just chugging when I did. I was just chugging along the road and they were just kind of zooming around and there wasn't a lot of human interaction. 
the entire trip, I never saw anyone else that was on, you know, foot travel. It was just people that were utilizing the roads for sightseeing purposes. Jeez, man. So so tell us about, you know, you you mentioned the post holing through the snow and and that obviously is just making life very difficult for you early on. Um, What were some of the other challenges of doing this versus your Montana's highest 50 peaks uh, adventure? Obviously there's, the temperature, which would be probably my biggest uh, deterring factor, is how cold it was. But h- how hard was that to actually deal with, and what were some of those challenges? Yeah, that's a good question. I would agree that the first thing is really just the temperature. And, you know, in the Beartooth trip, it was really easy to, in some sense to see where I was going because it, since you know, the beauty of it being a high route and doing a bunch of peaks is that you always have, almost always have a good vantage point. Whereas with this trip, I was primarily navigating with compass and especially on the lake crossings, for example, crossing Jackson Lake, it might've been upwards of half. I mean, it was fully socked in, you know, three quarters of the time I was on that lake for two days. And there were portions of time where it was a full whiteout. You know, I could be quarter, half a mile from shore on the West end. And all I could see was white. The lake is flat and white clouds are socked in and it's just dumping snow. Like I couldn't see, I mean, and it's, so it's kind of a visual sensory deprivation. And I, I had this little Sunto compass that I clipped onto my watch, you know, wristband. So I just kind of pull my, and I, it was kind of nice because I was going due North. So I would just like look at that every once in a while and just try and stay in a straight trajectory. But it was really disorienting. At some points there'd be a little bit of cloud break, we'll say. And I could see shore for a little bit. And then I'm squinting and trying to figure out like, and, and get context for what I'm looking at. And the lake crossing itself was just a huge mental game. I mean, two days on the lake of just going straight and nothing really changing, nothing really getting any closer. It, it just felt like I, and I was going so slow that it was mentally pretty taxing just to, just to trudge forward and go straight. And then the cold was another factor. I mean, the Beartooth trip was the lowest it got was about freezing in this trip. I don't think it ever got above freezing and the temperatures dropped. I think uh day seven or so, it, it, you know, the second half was a cold snap, but day seven was the coldest and it got to about 20 below ambient temperature. It was pretty still, but any breeze then was just, you know, cuts you that much more. And so I was, I have, I had like four different pairs of gloves of, uh, you know, uh, varying degree of, we'll call it insulation or warmth. My sleeping bag was rated to negative 40. I had, a, I have a good small two person mountaineering tent and, and that stuff worked great. But things I haven't experienced before are because it was always sub freezing. I ended up getting some moisture and condensation issues in my tent and and in and on the outside of my sleeping bag. So especially the second half of the trip, you know, it's like anytime I'm getting in or out of my tent, you know, it's snowing or it's just impossible to keep snow out. I try, 
but it's just impossible. My sleeping bag, when I lay it out, you know, when I'm taking off my ski boots at the end of the night, I sit on my sleeping bag. Well, any snow that's on there or any anything or any moisture that might be on my pants then just melts it onto my sleeping bag. Or when I sleep, I'm I'm on one side of the tent, my gear is on the other side, you know, my body is radiating heat. And so because there was condensation and frost build up on the interior of my tent, then that was melting onto my sleeping bag. So the I honestly the last like four nights, I think I I just my feet were numb the entire night. Even though some of those nights it was only it got down to like only zero degrees and my bag is rated for negative 40 because there was this ice lens on my sleeping bag that I couldn't dry out. My feet were just numb. And those were things that are not only different from the Beartooth trip, but I just didn't anticipate. It got and I also have a good little I used an MSR whisper light stove, which is a classic you know, it's, it's a creme de la creme of stoves that people take into cold regions. And it runs, I mean, you can pretty much run off of, uh, you can run off of a handful of different types of fuel. The main fuel that's utilized is uh, white gas and, and it runs, but there is a point where the fuel bottle has a gasket and you put a fuel pump and screw it on the top. Well, that if it's, I think it's really around, negative 10 or negative 15, that gasket, you know, molecularly shrinks and then you can't get a good seal. And then you can't pressurize your fuel canister. When you can't pressurize your fuel canister, you can't work your stove. And so there, that really cold morning I got up and I just couldn't even get my stove going, you know, and I tried for a while, I couldn't get it pressurized. And so after all that time, after the really cold night, and I'm just standing around and it's 20 below, I couldn't even get something warm to drink or melt any snow. And I had to melt snow the entire time. I didn't bring an auger uh, or anything to, to penetrate the ice because that's really the only predictable fresh water that I could have gotten. So the entirety of the trip, I just had to melt snow. And in the morning and in the evening, I think it was about a two hour time frame that I was just melting snow. It's the first thing I did right when I got up is turn on the stove, start melting snow. And it was the first thing I did when I got to camp. So I'd start melting snow and then I'd have to dig a pit for my tent. Otherwise, you know, when you get in your tent, you just sink down. Like the first couple nights, there's five, maybe six feet of snow, you know, from surface to the ground. So I had to dig a pit that was the surface area, the footing of my tent, plus a bit extra at the entrance to allow me to get in and out. Um, and it had to be at least three feet deep to where I, when I got in, I wouldn't just continue to sink down. And that in and of itself was, I mean, it took me 30 minutes of solid, rigorous shoveling to dig the pits. And I ran some calculations yesterday, continuing the, the geeking out trend maybe it's the engineer in me, but it, you know, roughly a thousand pounds of snow to, to dig out that pit each night. So, so those, I mean, so it's not just like, you know, ski all day and get to camp and you just have a hunky dory time. It's like you ski, you, you wake up, you're put on my cold ski boots, my feet immediately go numb if they're not already numb. And then, 
continue to like melt snow, fill up my capacity, try and hydrate, eat, organize my food for the day and then ski all day. And then it's that whole like camp setup situation. So those are probably the main differences that I had between, you know, I guess in terms of climate between the Bear Truth trip and this. Was there anything out there or any experiences or, or daily habits that, that brought you joy, that brought you something to look forward to? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, it was, I honestly really enjoy the isolation. There's something, and I was thinking about this this morning, like whether it's Yellowstone or somewhere else, just being out in the wilderness and especially off trail and just deciding where you want to go is beyond liberating and just going places that people don't really go, you know, especially for this in the winter. Like I saw so many things that were unexpected, you know, wildlife. I didn't know what I was going to see or where I was going to see it and sunrise and sunset and all of these the, the natural processes of the world, like the, even the lake slush, like I don't want to explain that and have it sound like, like the trip was just this big suffer fest. I mean, I'm fascinated. <laughs> yeah. So far, by, so far, that's what it seems like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm just fascinated by the process of the natural world and how things really work. And had I not gone out, I wouldn't have known that that lake slush was something that happened. And, and I learned a lot about the park. Uh, there was a giant fire in the park in 19 or well, a series of fires in 1988 that burned roughly a third of the park, which is 2 million acres. And as a result, sort of the, the, the trees and foliage of the park has changed and it, and it bounced back, but in a different way. And some areas just had really like unnavigable, dense lodgepole forests. And I got to see some of those and experience that. And I think that it's just, it gives me a context for this world that I would have never otherwise seen. And it's in winter, like you mentioned, it's, it's dead silent. And it, that in and of itself is just something that we don't really get to experience in the day-to-day life. Sounds, sounds magical, honestly, when you put it in that sense. Uh, what, what was the situation with the animals? Because that's one of the things that Yellowstone's really known for is the wildlife. Did, what, 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 what is going on that time of year with the wildlife? Yeah, that was, a, that was something that I, I'm... I mean, one of the reasons why I picked Yellowstone in particular is because it, it's, you know, it's Jurassic Park. I mean, there's free roaming bison, you know, there's moose and elk and wolves. I mean, there's mountain lions, there's all of the big game critters and, and so much more that take refuge there. And I had no idea what I was going to see. Interestingly, the first three days crossing Grand Teton National Park, like in the the entirety of three days, I only saw two raptors, two birds flying around on separate occasions. Total. I barely saw, I think I saw maybe one or two sets of animal tracks 
And I was just thinking, where are all the animals? And as I started, you know, as I continued north, I started to real like there was less snow. And then I realized that there was a lot more animal tracks and I saw a lot more animal activity and I saw a lot more animals. But just in those three days, I was I was laughing to myself thinking like, geez, I I see a, a significant more wildlife amount, more wildlife driving to Walmart where I live a couple miles from my house than I did crossing this national park. I mean, I, at least I'd probably see a deer and a domestic dog. Right. But this was just two birds. And then as, yeah, the last couple days, really, I mean, and for perspective too, as I mentioned, the Grand Teton National Park could have somewhere in the realm of like five to six feet of snow right now. West Yellowstone has about three feet. And in the middle of the park near Old Faithful, and then to West Yellowstone, there's a lot of thermal activity. So the snow in those areas is a lot less um, has a lot less depth. And that's where I started to see all of the bison because they're grazing and they essentially put their head down in the snow and move the snow out of the way so they can get to the vegetation below. And I saw hundreds and hundreds of bison. I saw a fox, like a red fox one night. Uh, I think it was my last night out there. And at dusk, I just it was in this kind of flat area ahead of me and I just watched it hunt for like 30 minutes. I was just in, in awe. And for some reason too, it, and I've just another thing I observed within myself and in the day-to-day life as I'm driving around, you know, I could be driving to a job or just going somewhere for the weekend. When I see wildlife along the side of the road, or, a, you know, a bird flying by, you know, and this may be just me, but I tend, I'm like, oh, you know, I acknowledge it. That's cool. But I'm also driving 70 miles an hour. And as soon as you see it, it's gone. And doing these types of trips really gives me time to slow down. And as I mentioned, observe the natural world. And I just got the fox was just walking around and then it would point on something and then it would kind of rear up and then just jump vertically and pounce down into the snow, you know, head first in attempt to get some mouse or vole or some small critter that's down there. And when I watched it hunt, it was, it was unsuccessful and it, but it just kept wandering around. The last day I saw two coyotes and one of them, you know, was going along the road as I was in the, you know, opposing, we were opposing direction, but then there was some traffic on the road and it went off the side and it was just deep. This was a, a lone coyote and it was just this deep post holing up this steep. I don't even know what you call it. Just this probably a hundred vertical feet, kind of this rock uh, feature. And I just watched it struggle up that. And it gave me perspective too, for sort of what I mean, I'm out there for nine days and I come back and I'm, you know, licking my wounds, but these animals are out there 365 days a year and they manage and they find food and, and shelter and endure all of these temperatures. The bison honestly seemed relatively unaffected by the cold temperatures. 
you know, they'd lay down and then in the morning I'd see them and they're up and they're just walking around eating. So crazy, man. Gosh. Yeah. I saw an eagle on the last day. There's uh there's quite a few ducks, you know, floating in the river as I, there were a few rivers that were um, not frozen. And I think mostly because of two reasons, one, because of the thermal activity that feeds into the rivers and two, because there's enough water that it's in it, the water's moving and it's more difficult to freeze. One of those rivers is the Madison river that I was adjacent to, you know, the last day I did a long, hard push, a uh, bit, bit over 20 miles to get out. And there were trumpeter swans, you know, big white birds that were just in the river floating around and ducks. I saw geese. I mean, so it was for the first three days having kind of an absence of all life coming towards the end of the trip where it just seemed to be all around me was kind of a magical turnaround. That is too cool. That is what, what, a, what a great way to, to finish the trip too. Another aspect of Yellowstone I wanted to ask you about was, you know, Yellowstone's famous for, uh, it's, you know, thermal activity. Like you said, if you've never been on the surface, it just looks like some, some outdoor space, you know, incredibly beautiful and there's animals, but there's just this bizarreness to the landscape with all the activity going on. You'll just be walking around and there's this gurgling, bubbling pool of mud 30 feet across, just out in the woods. There's not even a marker, nothing around it. It's just like, what the hell is going on? It, it just is, it, it's like a, a, a Dr. Seuss landscape sometimes. Did you experience anything like that? Because another thing about Yellowstone is so, as many people that visit it, there's so much of it that's still uncharted, still unknown. There's famously like, 300 waterfalls that were discovered from very little effort back in the early 2000s just because it was just enough off the beaten path no one had ever visited or documented it you taking a lot of time off roads and stuff did you see anything like that that really was was odd or struck you yeah absolutely and i will say too that coming in the winter is also a different aspect and you know it kind of goes without saying but with the summer I mean, I, the thermal features are still bubbling and, and fuming. And, you know, I went through Old Faithful area and there's just tons of thermal activity. I mean, when I went through there, it was probably 15 degrees and the wind was blowing and there's, uh, it was snowing heavily at times, but you could just see through the, th kind of through the mist of white that, that was all over the landscape. You could just see this, the, the vapor coming out of the earth. And then even when I got off the beaten path, uh, and I was just doing some off-road miles, there's still a lot of thermal features that just don't have names. They're just there. And I didn't know that they'd be there. And some of them are very colorful. And I know I've heard that they're, I haven't been to Old Faithful area in the summer, but I've heard in the summer, they actually have quite a bit more color, but just like you're saying, just like mud and it's like, how is it? It's like 10 below zero. And these areas are just hot still in the honestly, probably the coolest thing I saw the entire trip was 
was something I also didn't expect the second to last day. You know, by the end of the trip, I was pretty tired and I could have just taken the last two days. I could have taken like, you know, 15 miles a day on the road and it would have been pretty, pretty low key to, to get out. But the second to last day, you know, when I was in old faithful, I, I stopped and was talking with the ranger and he suggested going off the road to this other area, ferry meadows, lower uh, geyser basin, and then ferry falls. And I was, I was, you know, kind of tossing and turning on it, just like, ah, is it worth it? And it's, it's been really cold, you know, it was, do I have the energy to do this? And then I knew that if I did that, chances are my last day would be a solid 20 miles to get out. But I thought, you know, I'll just go for it. So I did. And Ferry Falls was an out and back is the only time that I actually was able to ski around without my sled or backpack. It was just three miles round trip. And I was, I'd seen a lot of water features, a lot of small waterfalls, but this was unlike any waterfall I'd seen in my life. And I think because of the unique conditions of it being a little bit warmer with the snow, the, the, the rivers were kind of pumping at a higher flow rate than usual. And then the cold snap happened and I was at this waterfall a couple days. Well, I guess it had been really cold for say roughly 36 hours. And I think it gave this waterfall that already had a lot of ice, this opportunity to just freeze in this unworldly way. And it was just, it, I honestly don't even really know how to describe it other than it literally looked like a cathedral of ice. And in the cathedral, you know, it was probably 200 feet tall at the top. There was this inverted cone. It was probably 20 feet long that water was gushing out down into. And it was just, I mean, it was probably only a few inches thick, but it was massive. And then it gushed down into the cathedral, which was a, had had a hole in it that was 300 you know 60 degrees full encapsulating blue ice and then it rushed down and then there was this big opening where the water was just gushing and hitting rock and on all you know the ice feature itself that cathedral's at points probably 70 80 feet wide and it was it just i just stood there and i was just I kind of took my breath away. And then near the thermal features themselves, because of the vapor, you know, and that's going through the air and it can be kind of windy, it gets pushed into the nearby, you know, if there's any exposed vegetation or saplings or trees and you get these frost conditions on the trees that are remarkable on this and so that also on this Ferry Falls day, I went by this thermal feature called Ojo Caliente. And nearby there was a, a downfall tree with its, you know, these roots exposed. And there was almost what I would consider two-dimensional ice where you could see the different layers. I mean, it was ice that was protruding from these roots, you know, horizontally and really didn't have any thickness. And it, I was just, again, I was just completely in awe 
And there were small along the entire route, you know, we'll call them holes near boulders or trees. There's like gaps where the snow hadn't quite filled in. And I don't know what causes this, but I saw in these and I'd stop and like peek in these holes. They're like little caverns and there were just massive ice crystals. And I mean, some of them and they they took the they took all kinds of forms. I, you know, I would think it would be just a big cluster, but it took the form of some of them look like leaves and they're, you know, five centimeters long, like two inches long. Jeez. And I just, so all of these things are just out of this world that, again, I just, I'm sure that they exist in other places, but going out in the winter in these isolated regions gave me the opportunity to just explore and see whatever it was that was meant to be. Gosh, man, beautifully said. I'm looking at the pictures that you sent, Fairy Falls and... Uh, just the different aspects of the ice and just, it, it's unreal. It looks like just another planet you were exploring. Um, it had to be such a, just a, a, a strange experience at times, a beautiful experience and um, so rewarding. I, I hate it to run, but I got a hard stop on the hour. Can Can you share with us maybe the biggest lesson you learned with this experience keeping your, your previous 50, 50 peaks, uh, kind of in mind, like versus what you learned on that. What did, what did you learn here and what is, what is next for you? What do you think? I know it's, I know it's fresh, but is there anything clicking around? You said this idea was coming, you know, before your last trip. So do you already have what you want to do next in mind? Mm-hmm. I, as far as what I've learned, I think that this trip reinforced what, the Beartooth trip illustrated. And that is for me to continue getting off the beaten path and in exploring wild places under in it. I just feel it's so rewarding to, to, to push myself wherever I am for extended periods and to really try to understand the natural world around me. And it, it makes me feel it's invigorating and it makes me feel more connected with everything around me, having a deeper understanding. And it's something that I just want to continue to expand on. This trip in particular was something that I've been thinking about for, as I mentioned, uh, you know, the last six months or so, but this is, and so I wanted to do this, but it's also a building block for the future. I'm trying to develop and cultivate skills that would allow me to do longer trips or um, maybe more challenging terrain, get more, just more accustomed with the different type of gear and mm-hmm. just get more honed in with that. So I have two other things I planned for this year that are also, you know, I, I see them as their expeditions on their own, but they're also just great opportunities for me to learn. The first one is, and it's kind of dependent on the snowpack, but I want to come back to Wyoming in July and do all of the 13ers. There are 36 or 37 of them, similar to the Beartooth, the Montana top 50, 
but instead just go do this same thing in Wyoming. And immediately following that, uh, I'm a buddy and I are flying to Karistan to attempt to climb on Lennon Peak, which is roughly the hundredth tallest mountain in the world. And it sits at about 23 and a half thousand feet. And so getting more accustomed with, you know, you know, just continuing to develop the climbing, the endurance, the cold winter camping, getting more affiliated with the stove and different conditions that make travel easier or harder risk mitigation and management. Those are all things that I am just going to continue to, to expand on with these two trips in July and August. Brandon, I, I'm very excited for you for what's coming up for your, you know, continuing down this road, you know, you're saying it, it I feel like in a lot of ways you're just beginning, but that Wyoming trip is going to be, it's going to be wild. I've got one other friend that's doing something similar this summer with a hundred peaks. Uh, but news about that will come out soon and we'll absolutely have him on the show to talk about it. And of course, anything you ever do, we're more than happy to discuss, but, um, man, what a, what a joy to no pun intended, well, no pun at your last name, but what a joy, Brandon, to, to talk to you again and hear about hear about this and see some of this, visualize this landscape. What a fascinating trip. Well, cool. Was there, was there anything else you wanted to share where folks could follow you? I'm currently writing a trip report and I'm including a, uh, probably more photos than people would want to see as part of that visual They're really good. description and representation of the trip. But my Instagram is the wild Ned uh, with underscores between the words. And that would probably be the best place to, to, to catch up with me and to, to see photos from this trip and what's coming next. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to the show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.